Hi, Bindi. Uh, welcome to Network Capital. We are very excited to have you here in person and also to record a part of uh, this conversation for our larger global community. Today, we'll tease out mental models and career principles that have shaped your very adventurous career, if I might add. So, could you tell us uh, a little bit about who you are and a background about uh, what are some choices that made you get here? Sure. Uh, since we're talking about who I am, let's uh, start from the very beginning, right? So, I'm from Bombay, uh, so not a Delhi person at all. Uh, and grew up in Bombay in a very middle class, uh, I would say, in some sense, in a house. And I went to school there as well and um, went to undergrad. So I picked engineering um, because I've, I've always been, in some sense, a techie. My father's an engineer. Uh, my house, almost all the men, I think, are engineers in a sense. So I grew up in a factory. Um, I used to play with wires and parts and everything. And in our house, anything, if it's broken, my dad will hand us the hammer and the screwdriver to as a little helpers around him. So um, I think there's a natural affinity towards breaking things and making things. Uh, and there's a natural inclination towards math and science. I think it was just very easy for me to do those two subjects. It just came very easily. So I picked those two. Um, and so engineering was my first choice as a career. There was no thought. I think I didn't even think twice uh, post my 12th that this is the stream. I mean, there's an option. I was good at bio biology as well, but I said, not happening. I can't give up physics and um, I can't give up math. I have to do those two. So um, I went to engineering, very simple, in Bombay, uh, some random Bombay University college. Uh, there are loads of them around. Uh, but there was, I think I picked it in a sense with the idea. There was, it's a college, I think, in Villepal. It was good for a specific subject. I wanted to do electronics and telecommunication at that point. The majority of people were going towards computer science. I think that was, when I was in college, that was the coolest thing. Computer science, IT, the whole wave had just come through. Um, I picked electronics and telecommunication because I wanted to do both hardware and software. I thought I just didn't want to code. Uh, that was just not fun to me. So I, always, I picked something where I could do something tangible. I could actually feel things and um, make something out of it. So that was my four years. I don't think I really learned anything in college, to be honest. Um, I don't know how many of you have done engineering in India, but um, I don't think I learned anything in the classroom. I learned a lot in the labs, um, but what I learned was outside the classroom. Like as any engineering student, you study in the last 15, 20 days. Um, that's pretty much what I did. I was sit in college and I learned you teach each other. So I think the peers understood. Um, luckily for me, I was one of those kids who could not road memorize. Um, so that forced me to actually understand the principles. So I used to read all the textbooks to actually understand the basis behind each thing. And then write my own stories in the papers. So I would fill supplements of crap because I, could, I had to explain the principle because whatever my understanding of it was and I just could not sit in... Um, you know, write exactly as they're told, you know, you get those tuition journals or whatever. I just couldn't do that. Um, so that was sort of me, uh, through those four years of engineering, somehow got through. Um, and in some sense, in my third year, I had some personal issues plus, and I ended up getting something called as a KT, which is in Bombay. I don't know if it's there where you're in Delhi, but it's something called as ATKT, where you basically okay. fail a subject. Exactly, allowed to keep term. So I got that in a subject that I was probably the best in class. I used to teach everybody that subject. Um, it's called Signals and Systems. And for some reason, I um, I got a ATKT in that. It's not a big deal. So 
um, you get it the next term you apply again and you give an exam again but in the process it convinced me that this is the subject i want to do for life um, so it convinced me that cuz i got atgt uh, and i really loved it i mean it was probably uh, the thing that i enjoyed the most and so that's what convinced me to say okay this is what i want to do if i want to study further um and because i thought i hadn't learned anything in the four years of college i i thought i really need to study more uh plus i come from a family where um in some sense the women were pushed to study more like my grandfather used to celebrate each one of us getting a second degree uh so when my cousin got a phd it was like a big thing in our house that his granddaughter got a phd um, almost all my mom was pushed to do a second degree uh so in some sense i was also pushed to say go study more uh, you know either go to iit and do uh you know what are the masters program is give your gate and do that or go to the us and study but we were pushed to do that in some sense and so i ended up going for my masters and i picked signals as my major um and i i applied to a whole bunch of colleges and michigan was one of those colleges where i really liked their program there were professors who were doing some very very interesting work uh, in the subject that i liked and there was a there was a minor or a major in that subject of signals like it's basically called embedded controls so everything that you use uh, has an embedded control system inside it your phone your car your washing machine your fridge beat whatever it is there is a board somewhere inside that is the brain of that machine um and so it excited me in a sense and so i picked that as my master subject and ended up doing it uh when to michigan i think it's, it's a spectacular school i think anybody who's going for a master should consider is that it as a school not only is a it is a great master school no this is university of michigan ann arbor yeah. so not only is i mean in some sense it's not only good as a like a like a whole like a, academically but it's also very good non academically one it's if you enjoy sports it's a huge football school that's why i asked yes so i I'm, i'm a i'm a wolverine all the way uh, but uh, so yes but i also run the michigan university like the club i'm the president of the club just so you know um But yeah that was that was sort of I picked um, you know UFM because it's such a great school uh, but it had sports it had music and I've always been inclined in sports let's just say my dad sort of perceived he had one daughter initially so I was the second kid I think he always wanted a son somewhere and so I think I was the kid that was naturally pushed towards sports so I used to watch cricket hockey everything with him not like he treats treats me like his son I'm a second daughter no questions over there but um in some sense i was the kid that got and i played sports so i also like michigan was a huge sports school so i picked that was the other reason why i picked plus it has a huge arts inclination uh so for me the cultural fit and all of that and then once you land there you realize it is the most awesome party school also yeah um i discovered so, that on st patrick's day yeah so you land up in ann arbor and it is the best campus to be on in some sense so i I think the two years I learned a lot besides the academics, and obviously it has some of the best professors. So I, I think the my major engineering learning happened there during your masters. During my masters, I think the labs over there, uh, the kind of project work that they gave us, uh, really pushed me to think and learn, uh, and in some sense, sorry, made me an engineer to some extent. I don't think I still learned. I think a majority of my engineering learning happened on my job. 
uh, I don't think I'll learn. So the one that you took after. Right. So the one that I took after was uh, so the engineering college. I think post that I was making choices, and like every kid in engineering, you go to well, Michigan has close to about hundred companies that come on campus during career fair. Um, I went and spoke to a whole bunch of them and realized I didn't want to do banking. I didn't want to do consulting. Uh, I wanted to do engineering. I was one of those kids that still enjoyed engineering in its core form. Um, and so I looked around and plus again my my natural thought of I don't want to be a code monkey. Um, so I, I looked around them and no offense meant to anybody who's coded at TCS or you know Wipro or any of those companies where you sit and code or even Microsoft. Uh, I think it was just me who didn't want to be do the back office work. I wanted to actually see my work. Um, and so I started interviewing for the companies that were actually had a hardware and a software and ArcelorMittal was one of them. Um, they came to campus um, and the best part about that company that I found was one, they came to campus with senior management. Very few companies actually send senior management to campus. So when I actually interviewed, I felt that I was valued. Straight up, I felt like, okay, if, if a plant manager is coming to interview me and he's taking like two days out of his schedule, I think when I go there, they will value me in a sense. Um, and I felt that. I think in a lot of ways when I went, they took us to the mill for a, in, like an interview and it was fascinating. They took you to a mill? Tell us about that. So, I mean, I went to the steel mill. For my second round of interview, I went to the mill. It's not that far. It's from four hours from Michigan and Indiana where I ended up eventually working. Um, I went to the steel mill out there and they, they gave us a plant tour. Uh, they walked us around. I think it was the, the rolling mill. Uh, rolling mill is basically you take a hot slab of steel and you roll out a coil of steel. Um, and so they took me there and I walked around and I saw these large, huge machines um, and was really blown away, right? Like because um, for me, these big machines, I mean, I'd seen these smaller machines in my dad's factory, but I had never seen these giant, huge machines. And I, I, I being the techie that I was, it really excited me. Um, all the sensors all around and all the equipment there uh, got me super excited. So I sort of somewhere said, this is the company I want to work on. And then there was an interview right right there? Yeah, there was an interview in the mill with a couple of managers. So they had asked us for our interest areas and I had clearly, there was a department that wasn't interviewing, uh, which was called process automation, but I told them that's exactly the department I want to work for because I don't want to work as a mill engineer on the ground. I want to do the automation behind because I had studied embedded controls it made sense to do the back-end, um, you know, controls of all the work that was happening in the mill. And so um, I insisted that that's the only department I will interview with. So they got the senior management there to interview me. Luckily, I was probably the only person with a master's coming in. I see. Uh, plus, that was the first year they were interviewing. So the mills had gone through a downturn before that, and they had fired almost half their staff. Fired in the sense laid off and given voluntary retirement. And they had not recruited for close to about 10 years before they, they got a whole, like they got 50 of us on board. So we were like this new fresh blood that came in um, and they got us all in over there. And so, yeah, I interviewed, I saw the mill and it's fascinating. I mean, if any of you get a chance to go see a steel mill, it's probably, um, I mean, it's, I might sound crazy in a sense, but it's very, very exciting. Um, yeah. I spent four years there, so I can't say it's So, four exactly. years after Michigan, you went to ArcelorMittal yeah. as an engineer, worked there for four years. Correct. So, I, I handled, initially I worked across because process automation was the back end of everything. Um, so, I worked across uh, and then um, in my second year, because I kept asking for more work. 
um, I kept pushing them to actually give me more because I wanted to climb. In some sense, I was very clear that I want to be at the top where the decision is being made. Um, very ambitious in that sense. The engineering where I was, top or the management top? Or just generally just the top. top. I wanted to run the show. That was, that was my thought process. Um, I don't know for what reason, but I wanted to run the show. Maybe because I come from a business family and you're used to running and taking decisions. But I was ambitious. And I still am. I won't deny it. I, I pushed the metal and I asked. First year itself, um, I asked for a promotion straight up off the bat and realized a lot later. How did you ask? I just went into the manager and said I deserve it, right? Like all my peers who graduated walk, from walk Michigan. Walk us through that conversation so, because a lot of us want okay. to get promoted and we'd love to hear from you. So everybody who graduated from Michigan, um, I mean I found out the salaries of everybody who was graduating. Plus I had peers from undergrad who were at NYU. Another. So I found out their salaries, they were making say 90k, 100k, whatever, like that's $9,000 or $100,000 and I was in the mill obviously in Indiana, so was obviously not making as much, I must have been making like $60,000. But you had a master's. Yeah, but the thing is you're in, in, in Indiana, your expenses are negligible, right? My rent was not even 15, <coughs> 40, 40, like some $10,000 or something, it was neg- I mean I was, it was very, not $10,000, what am I saying, some $800, I don't know, it was very cheap. A year. Yeah, <coughs> but it was overall like just my standard of living was so cheap that I probably saved way more money. But the thing is I put a full comparative analysis out there and I went to the boss and I said, look, my peers out there are making. I didn't negotiate when I came in, but I think I deserve more of a salary. Uh, and I deserve more work. So you need to give me more. Uh, and so I went and like... So what did he or she say? So he said, no, we're not giving raises. No, we're not doing anything. But I said, look, anyways, the mill is making a lot of money. The downturn had still not come in. The market had not crashed at that point. Which year are we talking about? This is still 07. So, so literally a couple of months into my job, I went and had this dialogue with that boss. I said, look, I just found out all these salaries and I think I deserve to make more money. I don't think I'm getting enough money. Uh, and so he, I just kept pushing him to say, and I kept showing work, right? It wasn't that I wasn't delivering. It wasn't somebody that was just talking. I, was, I had picked up multiple projects. I was delivering on each one that I was picking up. I was taking initiative to go out and pick more projects. I was taking initiative to say, give me all the work that you have. And so in some sense, he also saw that I was delivering and I was picking up projects. I wasn't waiting for somebody to give me handouts or, you know, for them to allocate work. I was, t- I was going out there and saying, I will take all the work that nobody wants to do. Uh, and in some sense, delivering to all those projects. So in that sense, I mean, he saw that drive and he saw the work I was doing and I kept pushing. I also made a case saying, if you're not giving me a raise cause, I'm a woman. But he said, no, and so I pushed in so all that. two months in you go with this yeah. analysis, he doesn't give you what No, you he want. did. Okay, he did. So he gave me a 5% raise. In two months? In Not in two months, so six months. Because they, they did a six-month eval. Unheard of, right? Doesn't happen uh, often. So they yeah. gave a 5% sort of raise. So overall in the year, actually, I ended up getting a 11% raise. Uh, And I think most people I later found out got only a 5% raise. Were you aggressive in your negotiations? Not aggressive, but I would say assertive. Um, I made it a point. What is the difference? So I think the point is aggression can can become negative. Aggression is when you get sort of angry or you push to a point where the other person doesn't understand. So when you're doing a negotiation, you want to do a win-win. And you eventually, I learned that terminology in business school that you want to do a win-win, right? Like the other person should also feel they got something in the bargain. 
Whereas when I did it, I mean, I wasn't thinking. So, assert, I think when you're assertive, you're putting a point saying like you are getting one, two, three, four. You've got a good candidate over here. Uh, and this is what I am getting, right? So, you might as well, both of us win in the process. And I'm going to be here for a long term. I did a full sales pitch over there. I'd taken all the data. And so, he also felt that it was the Plus right thing. Plus, you were delivering. Plus, I was delivering. You cannot right. have this conversation when you're not delivering. Absolutely. I mean, I think you shouldn't even walk into the office if you're not doing your work, right? I mean, if you, you have to be delivering above and beyond to ask for that raise, right? And I did for four years straight out. I think every year I asked for that raise. And I got what I... Uh, I should have gotten more, I still say that. Uh, it's never enough. But I got a decent raise every every year. I mean, second year in, I got a promotion actually. Luckily, so many people had retired. And there was a job up. And I just walked into the bus's office. Another lady who was running the show. And I said, I will take this if nobody's taking it. So this was like running two blast furnaces. Um, and I said, if this guy is retiring, I will take this job up. Uh, I will do this. I'll figure out a way to learn it if you don't have it. And did they give it to you? Yeah, she gave it to me. She said, um, luckily, so this person was actually my mentor in a sense. She was this lady who um, had an office next to mine. So she adopted me in a sense to say that I will protect you. Because I was this young little 20-year-old brown girl walking around. Um, and so she said, I will protect you in a sense. She taught me how to function in the mill. She told me things like saying, uh, you know, don't get yourself killed out there. Uh, don't open your mouth and say whatever you want. Could you elaborate on that statement? So don't get yourself killed was literally, uh, because it was the middle floor, it was a shop floor. Uh, you could literally get killed. People were dying almost every month. Uh, so that was just in terms of the safety issues. You get burnt, you, you get crushed. For Arcelor Mittal, actually, the, the safety record is uh, probably the best in the world. Um, so you will imagine, they, but they report every issue from a paper cut to uh, a person fainting on the floor to a person burning. In India, if you actually go, so there are places in India, the mills, if you check, the safety record is, is ridiculously bad. Uh, it's just that it's not reported. Arcelor Mittal publicly puts out its figures. So one person dying, I'm just saying dying was an exaggeration. There were she wanted injuries. you to take like, care of your Yeah, but she, so she said that. But the other reason was also because um, I was this young girl coming out there and I do have a tendency to say what's in my mind. I, I don't mince my words. Um, so I, I talk, I say I talk from my heart. I tell people there's no filter over there. So whatever's in my head, in my heart will come out. Um, and so I used to do that at the mill also. I was sitting at the 6 o'clock meeting uh, or 7 o'clock when we had a handover. I would just say whatever. So if somebody messed up, I would say you messed up. And she said you can't do that always, right? You know, you can't just run your role because they will take you to the you know parking lot. You won't even know one of these 6 foot men. You're a little 5 foot girl. They will crush you. Like they will just kill. I mean, you don't know who has what anger issues. You don't know what they're coming with. So be cognizant of that. And I think... It was a learning in a sense to watch my words as I went ahead in life also. Because you can't just open your mouth and say whatever you want in front of whoever you want. Um, sorry, you raised your hand. So, okay. Um, but any, I mean, it, it helps. I'm not saying it doesn't help to say whatever's in your head. Uh, but you do have to watch your words. And I think that was one of the learnings that she gave me in a sense to say, uh, you know, watch what you're doing, be careful what you're doing. And it's not because I was a woman, I was a young engineer on the ground. I had to prove myself. What she said is you have to earn the respect. I was working with men who were 30 years my senior. 
uh, men who had been working i mean their kids were older than me in a sense this was my crew uh, my crew of en- my electricians my mechanics so she in that sense told me that you have to earn their respect don't just run your mouth and behave like this brash engineer who's coming they will never respect you so I work with them learn from them and i think that was the beauty of it right in a sense she said if you will learn from them you will learn way more and i think that was my true engineering education to be honest i went with my crews out there i worked from everything to doing cabling on the ground to like working under the furnace floor everything with them you know has to come back dark and sooty in the night but i think what i learned in that process was probably the best learning any any engineer could have so this had was second there. year this is my second year third year whatever throughout the four years in that sense i did end up uh, working with my crews that way i mean i learned i think my first year itself also i got a crew i remember they asked me to fix a crane uh and in I, your first year in my first year itself they told me to fix a floor length crane cranes are basically that run across buildings and they have these giant magnets and rollers and they pick up slabs and things and they move around and so um i think i had the job to fix those cranes and i had a whole crew running like 48 hours straight up so but yeah that was these were the learnings in that sense that she gave me uh and the managers i think and how did this mentor mentee relationship come about so i think it was just natural because i walked into her office asking for work actually so initially i was not getting any work uh, the manager didn't know uh, what to do with this new engineer because they were not used to new people so i walked into her office saying i am bored can you give me work and so she started giving me web pages but, but these are your, these you, were my words that i am bored give me more yeah work. literally i told her i am bored i can't read espn anymore can you give me work and so she gave do you suggest me, that approach to other people who are sitting here uh, to some extent maybe not use these words but i would say there's no harm in asking for work yeah. because i think a lot of young people wait for work to be allocated to them i think in a new office when you start taking initiative and this is probably why i got the raise also right because i took the initiative and i picked up these projects i mean she gave me web initial web pages and i think at one point she gave me a whole project that i think saved the mill about close to a million dollars 1 million dollars yeah I mean, and this is year 1 Your two, your one or your two—I don't remember—but it was entire utility thing. They were going to get an external engineer, and she's uh, like an external company to do it. And she said, "Don't worry about it, Bindi, and I can do this." And we ended up coding the whole system. Um, and so, I mean, in that sense, I think they—I think she, the mentor-mentee relationship—I think developed in a manner where uh, I just asked for work. So I think. for me i think a majority of my mentors in life have been me asking them what can i do uh what can i generate for you or what work can i do and i always find that i've never gone asking saying can you mentor me yeah, that's a really bad i have idea. never i've never asked that question i've gone to people saying what this is you know what can i do for you in a sense and that's how it started with her also she eventually became my boss and i think you are 3 or 4 Um, so she was like, what the plant head or something? No, she was when she was working initially. When she started, she was a consultant. Then she became the head of steel making for the automation piece. Um, and I mean, she was she was different. I think in a sense, she's one of these ladies who's out there. Um, I call I call I should call her cookies and cream in a sense because she's like this soft, nice lady. Not 
you know, majority of female bosses, no offense meant to any women out there, turn out to be bitches for some reason. Um, you know, you turn out to be hard and you turn out to be, because you fought your way through. Um, you don't tell, tend to help other women. And what I learned from her, she was not that way. She was, she was still, uh, I'm not saying you have to be soft. She wasn't. She was hard as nuts. Um, you know, she um, would totally get out there and crush any guy out there with her words. Uh, but she was also she retained herself as an individual didn't become this mean boss and she nurtured like me in that sense as her I would say her protege or whatever you call it Um, I mean she was also very different when she tried to hook me up with her son so uh, (laughs) I think as at that age where she said you know she's an awesome girl why don't you think about it but I think in that sense uh, she she really uh, helped me think that I should give back or give forward as I go like when I saw her and even now I'm in touch with her um, you know I, I reach out to her periodically send her emails of where I am in life and I learned that element of being a female boss from her yeah. uh, of how to nurture and it was everybody across it wasn't just me she would sit I know another guy was having a very difficult marriage she sat with them for an hour and discussed elements of his divorce and whatnot and she didn't have to do that as a boss right you don't have to do that she sat there she would go out shoot beer like drink beer shoot darts play pool with the guys so she built those relationships in a sense yeah um and i think she built and that that boss relationship i learned from her um that was probably my first ever mentor in life um and i think that a lot of credit i think this, the the mental model to note out of here is that she went and say, said, how can I add value to you? And the mentor-mentee relationship was a byproduct. And how not will you be my mentor is not probably the way to actually find the mentor. True. And the other thing is that just a few days back, a few months back, she's still in touch. This is 10 years back. So you've got to be in touch with the people you develop a, a relationship with. Um, what happened after? So you were there at Mittal Arsula for four years, right? Right. So like I said, the the market crashed in 07. Um, and steel mills normally have a different cycle. So, so how were you in the same country? How do you, I mean, in the sense, it's a professional thing. So, I mean, how I stay in touch is I... Um, tend to go back when I go to the US if I'm going to Chicago I actually go meet her Uh, I go meet my crew also so I go to the mill and I meet all the people that I've worked with so there are a couple of them I still tend to send emails every couple of months just to say hey I'm alive this is what I'm doing in life how are the kids how are the grandkids Um, you know this is what is happening with my family and we just exchange these emails so I maintain that relationship Uh, obviously professionally I have moved to a different sphere in life now and she doesn't have as much of, um, you know, a give or take in that. But she'll always tell me whatever she thinks. And honestly, she'll just tell me, you know, this seems like a very nice thing you're doing or I think you should think about these other elements of what what is going on. <coughs> so I just, that's how I stay in touch. I, I tend to email uh, people in my life. I, I don't know why, but I have... Um, even my crew right now there are a couple of guys I still maintain a relationship with every couple of months or even a six month I will send an email and even they send an email back and so we just exchange pictures and talk Um, 
it's one of those uh, i guess relationships that you like to maintain and they they played pivotal roles in my life in a sense i think they made me who i was there uh, they watched over me um, i think in, they taught me a lot so i think for me those four years um, were my first learning experience my first job uh, it made me the individual i am today in a lot of sense um, a lot of strength came from each one of them so i think that uh, that to me was very integral um, so i think after that uh, like i said the downturn was coming in or it had already set in the mill sort of follows a two year delay process so still 2009 we were still getting our profit sharing checks while you know wall street was blowing up and people were talking doing the whole 1% uh, you know 99% uh, strike and what not we were getting really really nice paychecks um, but oh nine is when the questioning started happening because the mill started um, shutting down like we had shut down i think two furnaces uh, we were running one furnace at half capacity so when i say half capacity is a 9000 ton f- uh, furnace we were running it at like 4000 4500 and everything like half the part and this is the biggest mill in the western hemisphere uh, and half of it was shut down uh, aslormittal usa was making a loss um people were being asked to take voluntary retirement so oh nine is when i started questioning what i should be doing um at that point i was still the core engineer so i wanted to go west i wanted to go to the silicon valley uh, i wanted to get a job there or maybe start my own company so i started applying for jobs over there i was in a similarish capacity or different so i was thinking of a slightly higher role you think like a manager kind of role same industry same in not same industry because if you're going west you are looking towards more tech like i was looking at the apple at that point i was thinking of apple and microsoft because that that's the time when um, apple had launched the ipad uh, microsoft was thinking about all these really cool things there was this whole talk about the microsoft kitchen that was going on at that point uh, so it was really at that point those were the exciting things in my life and so i wanted to really go west Uh, and then at some point i started thinking of starting something of my own um, and still obviously go west and start a tech company of my own be an entrepreneur be my own thing um, and so what i realized was when i was doing all these interviews was i don't have the skill sets to run anything um, you know i've run crews i have the the management skill set of running or managing people but i don't know finance i don't know accounting i don't know marketing i don't know any of these skill sets and so i i started thinking okay then it makes sense maybe i need an mba uh maybe i need to think about getting more of an education because i don't have these skill sets and i you know i know a lot of people go into entrepreneurship straight out of college and do a good job and but i at that point thought no i need that degree uh that will help me grow as an individual and that will also help me uh you know do or start my business and obviously um an mba uh, you know most people get an mba and then it opens up a network on different things i didn't think about the network i actually didn't know uh, how big the networks are um so i started at that point i think i was my third year at uh, aslor mental i got the books i was working 16 hour days at that point Um, so I was you studying books and in GMAT. Yeah, I just went to the local library and got a whole bunch of books and studied them. Um, and I think in a couple of months gave my GMAT. So let's actually because a lot yeah. of people here are in the process of doing sure. that. So with a 16-hour day or a very long day with the like with the economic downturn, how did you really find time to prepare for the GMAT and how was the GMAT for you? 
Uh, so I got a 7-10. I don't know if that's a good or a bad score. It was a decent score that got me into HBS. Um, I think that was a cutoff at that point. 700 is the cutoff. Um, see, how I studied was I would just come. Luckily, I had two more uh, people working with me who were giving their GMAT. One ended up going to MIT for the LGO program. The other guy didn't pursue. But the three of us were around, so we kept egging each other to study. So it did help me in a sense. It's nice to find... Uh, a person to study. So I have actually two kids right now uh, who, I shouldn't call them kids, but two two young people working with me um, at Ashoka who um, are studying towards their GMAT and I actually told them, why don't you two talk to each other? Because, you know, you're competitive in a sense. So if somebody says, hey, I finished exercise one, two, three, four, um, then you push yourself to finish. And I think that's what helped us is the three of us were giving our GMAT around the same time. And so all of you had equally busy schedules? Almost busy schedules. I think they were actually working nights. So they were actually on shifts also. They were both shift managers. I was uh, a lot easier in that sense that I was doing days. Um, so I, at least I could study in the nights. They were uh, working like nights and days and oscillating. But pretty, pretty busy schedules. I think everybody in the mill had busy schedules. You just worked ridiculous hours. You went in at 6 um, you got back at 6 or 7, sometimes 12 in the night. It depends. It depends what you were doing. But at that point, there were sure. there were crazy days. Um, so you formed a small group. Yeah, we formed a small group in a sense that we were... Uh, we do that as well on Network Capital. Okay. We form these, we have this GMAT subgroup and people form organic pairs and support each other through the process. Right. I think it does help um, because in, in a sense, we were exchanging notes on what tools to use. Uh, more than anything, I think you talked about math, language, I think that you were struggling with and uh, I never had a problem with language because I do read a lot and I've always read a lot as a kid so it was very easy for me but math was a struggle because uh, because I'm an engineer, I always was looking for an answer at the end. So the GRE was very easy when I gave it but the, the GMAT is illogical in a sense, right? Because it's a process of elimination that you're doing. Uh, and it's a probability of an answer. It's not really an answer at the end. So as an engineer, I was always solving those problems, trying to reach an answer, and I just couldn't reach an answer. Uh, so in that sense, my friends sort of helped me to say, okay, there's never going to be an answer. Like, like just get over that, you know, and get over the fact that you have to uh, just work your way through and use the tools. So they suggested different tools. Um, and then at that time torrents was pretty big so we downloaded close to like 4 GB of testing material uh, and that's what I found very useful I, now I don't think you get them free and please don't do the torrents thing um, yeah, but, but, a lot of them practice but you get a lot of practice tests that you should do and I uh, for at least a month before my test I think I gave a lot of tests so I did both math and English separately and then I think 2 weeks in I kept giving full tests so I would just sit four hours straight and just give tests. No matter how tired I was, just give tests continuously. By then, had you taken a date for the exam? Yeah, I had a date. I think it was July or August. August, I think, at some point. That's a helpful strategy. Sometimes taking a date makes you a little Oh, for sure. Because um, I think it helps and I, you need a date, right? Because otherwise, I remember those books were lying at my house for a year. And I didn't study. The day I took a date, I think three months in, I just like put everything that I had. And no matter how tired I was, I just studied. Um, and I gave that test, right? Because it, it made sense uh, to just do it because you have a date. I mean, it's, it's a couple hundred dollars. It's not that cheap. 
uh, to sign up for that test. So you might as well like you know study towards it. Right. Um, and so yeah, I, I gave the test. I think August was when August or September was when I gave the test. Um, and then I was still working ridiculous hours because I remember we were starting. Were you happy with your score? Yeah, you I thought a, a seven ten was decent. Um, I had done my research on all these forums, and it said seven hundred is a general cutoff. Uh, and yeah, what they don't spell it out, but like it's an implicit understanding. Right, but I think that was a general understanding. They said they said if you are a, a male engineer from India, seven forty was the cutoff. Uh, for women, but I was applying from the US, uh, so I think seven hundred was the general understood. Cut Plus, off. your work experience, I think, was much differentiated. Correct. From Correct. A I lot think. Of other people. I think it was very different. But I. Uh, so that's why it made. Plus, I had a lot of extracurriculars. Such as. Uh, such as, so I used to work backstage for theater. I used to do community theater. Um, so because I used to like to paint, I ended up starting to make sets. Over there, and I started to get involved, and then had to do stage management over there. So I don't particularly enjoy the stage. To me, this is extremely intimidating to sit here and talk to you guys. But I do enjoy backstage a lot, uh, which also makes me a really good operations person because I love doing the backstage. I don't need a prize. I don't need anything to come on stage. Nobody needs to know me, uh, and I enjoy. It. I enjoy the act of. So I used to do community theatre. Um, I used to work with. Uh, an organization called the Girls and Boys Club. Uh, so for three years, I had actively engaged. This is this place. Uh, so the area where the mill is is extremely dangerous. Uh, East Chicago or Gary, Indiana, is the most dangerous place in the U.S. You can get shot at any point of time if you're on the streets in the night. And so I used to work there. And so to keep the kids off the street from guns, drugs, um, and violence. Um, they had these clubs called the the boys and girls club where you come in uh, after school because your parents are generally working, uh, you or doing two jobs. You come in, you um, you engage, you do art, you do music, you do your homework over there, play games. So I used to work there uh, for Aslomethal. They had sent a whole bunch of us to work. So I did that for three years. So in a sense, I had a lot of extracurriculars. I used to paint a lot um, just for myself. Um, I used to travel extensively, so that was another element to my, um, you know, general personality uh, or my, um, you know, what I, my application. So I had a lot of these extracurriculars, so I didn't need to really think about, uh, you know, I need the most awesome GMAT score. And to be honest, I also didn't have time. Um, I, it was August, uh, first round things were, uh, I think December was the first round. Uh, Jan or Feb was the second round at that point of time. So I no, not even December. Yeah. November or October is the first round. Yeah. Okay. So I really didn't have time to give the GMAT again. Yeah. And I was I was at that. I was also twenty seven, I think. Uh, so I was leaning towards the older age. I think the median is twenty seven when people do the MBA. I was twenty seven when I was applying. Um, and so it made sense for me that that, is, was the, that was the year that I was going to apply. I wasn't going to try again. So I said, 700, let's go. Um, I had picked top five schools. Um, I was of the impression that um, it doesn't make sense to do it from second string school, third string schools. I already had a degree from Michigan, which was one of the top schools for engineering. I said, I'm going to pick the top. I had worked in the middle for six years, middle America. So I picked the coasts. Um, so, I mean, those were the reasons. Plus, so I picked Harvard, Stanford, Wharton, um, Columbia, um, I think those, and MIT. 
uh, those were sort of my choices of the schools. I mean, obviously, I was still an engineer, so I was leaning towards MIT and Stanford as my core. Um, and I ended up giving uh, my GMAT and yeah, writing my essays. I wrote my essays, I think, over a two-week vacation. Um, because I was like, working, I think I was starting a furnace at that point so of time. So tell us more about the essay writing process and your recommendations. So uh, my essay writing process, I actually used to sit in a bar and write my essays because I used to come back from work and the only way to stay awake was I needed loud music and noise. So I would go, there's a Buffalo Wild That is super unique. I have not come across that yet. I had, I had no choice. I, I would sit at home and I would crash on the couch. I was working nights, I was working days, I was working... Because we were starting this furnace out. And the, I, so I used to go to Buffalo Wild Wings and sit there and write my so You took your laptop to a bar? Yes. And uh, started writing an essay? Yeah, I would just order like food or I would order a beer and I would just sit there uh, because it was a sports bar. Uh, there would be TVs on till like 1, 2 in the night. I would sit there and, you know, write my essays. And then I had kept a week or two weeks before the deadline. Uh, I had vacation left. So I took that time off. I came to India. Uh, and I wrote my three, two schools at that point. I wrote Harvard and I wrote one more school. Uh, I finished off like my essays at that point. So I didn't do any of these consultants or any of these people who help you out. Uh, I, had a, I have cousins who went to some of the top schools. So my cousin... Um, She's literally, I said, the reason why I got into Michigan and Harvard. She is now at Microsoft, actually, as a head of data analytics. She works there, but she used to be a professor at Rutgers. And she sort of read my essays, and then a whole bunch of others read my essays. And then, depending on where their friends were, they sent my essays to those people to validate. So if they had a friend from Wharton, they would say, hey, why don't you read her essays? They had another friend who went to HBS, they said, read their essays. They were pen undergrad. Uh, so luckily I had family who was really good at English, knew me very well, knew how the American style of writing was. And so we went through, I would say close to 20, 30 versions of my essay. Um, and it was brutal to a point where she would decimate my essay and say, this is garbage, you are writing like an engineer, uh, you don't know how to write. And then I would go back and rework and rework. So, so tell us more about the process. Do you remember your first iteration? What, what did she when she said you've written like an engineer and so why is that a bad thing? It's a bad thing because I think one in, in, in India we write very colloquial English um, in America um, the, the sentences are short the words are simpler we tend to use like these nice quotes and a lot of jargon in our conversation plus engineers tend to write really long sentences so I, I realized I used to write three four line sentences uh, and I don't know why maybe just because I maybe I hadn't actually written when I was in college before that. Like you had these assignments you wrote in college for that English class that we had on the side, but you didn't really write, right, right? Like in the in the US you write papers and you write other things and maybe liberal arts colleges in some sense now I see at Ashoka, people have a lot of writing work that they do. We didn't as engineers. And so I wrote like rubbish English. To be honest, when I actually read it, eventually now when I go back and I look at it and I... I, every year I help a couple of kids who are applying to business school and I read theirs and I realize that's how I used to write. Uh, now I tend to write not more than, you know, six, seven to eight word sentences. <laughs> so it's short. It's like to the point, um, you're not giving a lot of information. So that's the style. Now let's that's the, the style. substance. So the substance, in some sense, luckily she knows me inside out because she's my cousin. 
um, really helped where she started prodding and asking me what I do, right? Like, I thought my job was very average. I'm an engineer. What's the cool thing? And then she explained to me saying that you're a female engineer working in a blast furnace. Nobody freaking understands this, right? Like, how cool you are. Uh, and so in some sense, I think she, she really pushed me to think beyond uh, and pushed me to explain this in very simpler terms to say, hey, what's a brass furnace? Hey, what are you doing? Uh, and explain how cool your work is. And then she started bringing out these other facets saying, you also work in theater. You also volunteer. You also do art. You also go hiking and climb mountains. Why don't you talk of all these elements? Because you don't tend to talk about all these elements. And so, so I... Sure, so, so she helped you discover things that you were already doing but not writing. Correct. I mean, in some sense, I mean, uh, I was not that comfortable talking about all these things because these were things that I just did. Uh, and so I think that's why she pushed me to uh, think about all these elements and really go out there and write about them. Uh, and so I, I mean, I think the essays eventually turned out to be, I mean, I read them, I recently sent them to somebody and I read them again and I realized I sound like a really cool person when I read those essays. And that's like, there's a, there was an essay at HBS to say, how would you introduce yourself to your classmates? It's not there anymore. But I ended up writing all the facets of my life and realized I do so many diverse things. And it wasn't intentional. I didn't make these things do up. Do you remember me. some of what you've written? Uh, yeah, so I wrote about like coding and how it was... So tell us about, because a lot of people right. would be interested in how you structure because you one can do infinite things, but how do you put it in 500 words? Uh, okay, so what I think it was like, like I wrote about coding for instance and I equated to my art and I did a lot of these parallels where I started uh, equating different elements of life uh, and talking about how they, they became like one together. Um, so, like, I don't want to even give an example. I'm trying to think how I shortened it. Because I did write really write long ones. I think I would have to give somebody else credit to say that person sat and edited the hell out of my essays. Uh, and cut and put things together to make sense. But I think what I found was don't write extra shit. Um, because a lot of people tend to write a lot of extra explanation about what they do. And you don't need to write a lot of explanation. You can literally just write the two lines that explain what you're doing. Um, and that is enough of information. I mean, I've had people give a background to everything that they're doing and you don't need to do that. Uh, what Was there a underlying, like, pillars of your essay? There must be, because the way you equated code and art and other things. The reason I'm bringing this up is that many times super talented people, network capital people who are applying, end up writing everything and then it just looks like a list of achievements which is a really bad idea you know how do you put all of so, this together so one piece I got as advice was don't um, don't put what's in your resume and so I ended up pulling everything that was not in my resume which was my art and my, my travel and um, you know all these other elements to my personality um, on my essays yeah. so even my examples were very personal um, I, I wrote a whole piece on my grandfather and how he had influenced me in life. Uh, and I wrote a whole piece about even the conflict piece was very different from theater. So I didn't actually put, I put some professional examples, but a lot of you them... You have to, right? Like it, yeah, you, you have to. I mean, you like you, you don't have everything happens. outside, but yeah. there were other elements to uh, my whole piece that I put. 
which were off other parts of my life and so it actually looked like I'm doing way more yeah. uh, and I had instances of like all these other things and so I ended up putting all of that in there so, right yeah so, but how are you doing all of this in 2-3 weeks because you took the GMAT like 2-3 months in advance and you have 2 weeks to write the essay you did 30 iterations one I think, might wonder when you sleep I didn't actually I think I just sat and like, she was in the US so I would I would work on my essays through the day and then in the night do calls with her while I was in India uh, or in, in like whenever I got and time and some of it you had written in the bar in yeah, the US yeah and I think it was invariably we were just crunching these out and I remember she was grading papers at that time so she didn't even have time in between she would take time whenever Right. But I just sort of made it, like, I just did it whenever she had time. Like, if she had that half an hour, I would make sure in the middle of the night, I would be awake and get it done. 5 a.m. in the morning, I just got it done. So I kept churning them out to make sure that they came through. Uh, because it was just very essential that I get them done. I didn't have time. Yeah. Like, I had to get that deadline uh, done. And so I just, we just went back and forth. And every other day, I think there would be, or every day, she would send me something back and I would work. And we did a lot of Luckily, Skype was there at that point. So, we did a lot of Skype calls to work with it and keep working together. Right. Uh, and so, we ended up doing a lot of this work. So, What did you do for advice you didn't want to accept? Because um, you don't accept everything you get, right? Um, so, I just, I mean, we fought because we are sisters. Luckily, I could, I could do that. But uh, I think I just worked through it saying what makes sense, what doesn't. And I would just ask the question, does it sound like me? Uh, and a lot of times I think I fought back saying this doesn't sound like me it sounds like another person so I don't want this to be in there I remember my Stanford essay uh, towards the end it didn't sound like me and I I was so tired that I said forget it I'm just going to submit it and I ended up submitting it and I kept telling her it doesn't sound like me and maybe that's why I didn't get into Stanford because it didn't sound as uh, as genuine as say the HBS essays like the HBS essays were me on paper yeah. Whereas by the time I got to Stanford, we had like make versions of these essays that I ended up sounding like this other really cool person. Yeah. But it wasn't me. It wasn't as genuine. And so I think for me, that became um, a process where I had to really work uh, to yeah. ensure. So I kept pushing back saying, this is not me. This is not me. Yeah. Um, and I think that's, that's such precious there. advice because uh, the litmus test is whether the essay is the best reflection of you. It is not about a generic nice person or a generic high achiever. It needs to be the best version of you. And I also really like the fact that you had one or two core set of people right. who had affiliate notes and then they were coming back. If you send your essay to 25 people yeah, at the same time, it gets very guy, confusing. You end up creating a mess, right? Because everyone comes back with their own opinion. So that, that's... I just like to add one thing. I have a meeting with the... Uh, the uh, I have a meeting with Stephanie, who is the head of admissions committee at Stanford. Uh, so, uh, what she told me was, uh, you should, I mean, uh, the best essay is uh, when a person is sounding vulnerable. Because you, you, we cannot be a perfect person in any, in any situation. We, we face so many situations that we cannot be perfect all the time. So, the best essay or, or a best reflection of a person would be that if a person is okay, you know, with sharing his or her vulnerability. Yeah, the true, again, the authentic, true self, true. like sounding like yourself. <coughs> so you got interview calls from a bunch of schools? I'm no, I didn't actually. Uh, <laughs> I got an interview call from Wharton uh, and then uh, I got a wait list or a sort of a second round from HBS and then I got an interview call for HBS in the second round. So they sort of waitlisted me and pushed me to the second round. 
uh, and Wharton was uh, I got an interview call but then uh, yeah I didn't, I didn't get an admit there so I actually didn't get an interview call from any other school but I'd also applied just to five so how was the interview preparation like you're obviously uh, articulate but preparing for an interview is a different ball game so I think the interview prep was one luckily for HBS there is a, a question thing that you get like there are these standard questions that you're supposed to prep for so I got that guide and I interviewed that and then um, again my cousin had friends who had gone to Penn and HBS and so I ended up doing calls with them um, mock interviews yeah sort of mock interviews um, but I yeah I did sort of mock interviews with them and we walked through my essays yeah. Uh, and then I asked my recommenders to share what they had written so I was one of those people who didn't read my recommendations um, who did you? You didn't mention who so did you? So I ask? I asked my boss, um, the lady. The lady. Yeah. I asked my theater community theater head, uh, and then I asked one of my colleagues at the furnace to uh, to write my uh, records. One so, colleague, one manager, and one community person. Yes. Yeah. So that's that's essentially the three. I think HBS needed three. Stanford needed three at that. Everyone point. they keep changing. Yeah. Even the interview thing it doesn't happen that. Correct. Way. But so, the essence is the same. Yeah, so but I didn't read my records. They asked me for guidelines and I didn't know. To be honest, I didn't know that I was supposed to read them. I went for the session later for Stanford or something and I found out that, you know, people had done uh, levels of this thing where, you know, they had read their recommendations. And now I know because when I work with these kids, they make me read their recommendations and uh, go through this whole process and we do a check and we sometimes rewrite it. But at that point of time, I really didn't know. So I'm like through the, I think MBA application process, I hadn't done that much research because I didn't have time. I really didn't have, I was working like crazy hours, but I didn't have time to think through this process. I just sort of said, let's get this done and get it out of the way kind of. So for your re referees, did you give them some points or you left it entirely to them? I gave them a general idea to say these people are looking for a leader, they're looking for uh, you know, somebody who's a go-getter out there and just, I told them, be as honest as you can about who I am. Um, so and you obviously didn't write the recommendation? Oh no, I didn't even look at them. I hadn't read them till like, so I've read only, actually I've not read two of them. Uh, I have read my boss, the lady, she sent them to me post her submission and said, I thought you might want to read what I wrote. Uh, and so I ended up and surprisingly her recommendations were almost mirrored to my application. So she had beautifully, and maybe that's the point, right? If you're authentic, then your recommender who knows you. And luckily I picked three recommenders who knew me inside out because I was working with them. They ended up writing super authentic um, recommendations of me. And so her record was almost, um, I think, mirroring in a sense who I was. Um, and very much looked like my essays. I mean, right. it, it almost looked like I had canned this. Um, and I mean, she wrote some beautiful stuff about me, uh, which I was like blown away with. But yeah, I didn't like, I didn't read any of this. I didn't tell them what to write. They just wrote it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, yeah. Giving points of reference to the referees is completely fine. But writing is uh, unethical and also like softwares can easily detect. No, and I would say avoid it, to be honest, because the voice of who you are and what you are makes it, everything sound the same then. So it's better that your recommender writes it. And there's one advice that I always give people when they're writing, like doing their records is uh, find people who actually have worked with you. Just don't, like if you've got the cinemas guy who's gone to Harvard or Stanford, don't go get their record, get it of somebody who's actually worked with you and who knows you. 
because then they can truly like write something about you if you're going to be writing about somebody who's the cinema's boss they're going to write a very generic record uh, and i don't know if it really really helps out there right. so, yeah so you get into harvard yes. uh, i'm sure it felt great oh yeah it was i it was i was over the moon i i didn't so i i couldn't even open my uh, when i got it i i was in office they had gmail blocked Uh, so I couldn't even open it. I sent my password to my cousin and said, "Please open it." And she, I was sitting in a meeting and she was screaming on the phone, saying, "You got in! You got in!" Um, I remember going to the bathroom and like doing the phone call. Um, and I then I came out and literally there was a smile on my face. And my boss looked at me and she said, "You got in!" And I was like, "Yeah," um, because I didn't I didn't see that email. She, I, and at that point you couldn't do screenshots. There was no WhatsApp. There was nothing, right? <laughs> Facebook was blocked, Gmail was blocked at work, and I didn't have a smartphone. I had a regular phone at that point, um, and so I I didn't see that email till I got home. But yeah, I got in, and that's how I got the information. I was over the moon. I think it was a huge thing. Um, so yeah, that also meant a new chapter. So you'd come to HBS. How were the two years? Uh, it was a, a brilliant ride. I think um, the first six months, I thought I was an admissions mistake uh, because why? Why did you feel that? It was difficult. It was very, very difficult. Um, I think I did finance, accounting. Um, you know, sitting in a classroom. I'd been working for four years. It was difficult to be like be there, study so much, uh, be at all these parties, do everything. You know, get into the clubs and be a part. There's so much FOMO that was setting in. Are you an introvert or an extrovert? Or an I am a high introvert. Actually, so parties are obviously. Can be work sometimes. Oh, they they are, but I used to still go like four nights a week and go out drinking. Uh, so I was half the size before business school, just to tell you. But uh, in in a sense, I think yeah, they were. And I think I the first year I felt this pressure that I had to do everything. Then I realized I didn't need to. Like I didn't need to be a part of all these clubs. I can pick and choose what clubs I want. Uh, like the really ones that excite me. um i didn't need to go to all the parties i could just hang out with my friends i didn't need to be drinking four days a week to actually make friends and be a part of this network right uh but it was difficult just sitting in that classroom putting my hand up and speaking up you are not trained as an indian to speak up indian woman specifically not trained indian woman engineer you're setting yourself up to fail right you you're not used to speaking up you're not used to putting your hand up and So I learned over there that I had to speak up because my grade was dependent on it, and I learned that I had to put my hand up and put my opinion out there. I always had an opinion; I won't deny that. But I mean, it was difficult to like go out there and really go there and talk. Rajat Gupta, who's who we studied in the book club, he talks about the same issue at HBS. The so how did you con- conquer that? I mean, I when when the, I just started, I think I initially would just randomly get in on easy points. and then i learned that you know it's not a big deal everybody was struggling and luckily they help you a lot um i didn't get invited to this thing that they do before hps where they call the international kids and they teach you how to raise your hand and talk because i wasn't international i was coming from the us so they assumed that i was very comfortable with putting my hand up and talking but um i just worked through it i think i just like i would push myself to just put my hand and slowly it became a habit that you put your hand up and you just speak up uh and so i just it got into a point where i got very comfortable doing that um but it was a struggle and because i said like i'm a high introvert i don't uh tend to really go out there and speak up um and i don't tend to really 
go and put my hand up. I prefer those one-on-one interactions. So a 90 people class was intimidating. Um, luckily, there were some subjects that I was really good at. Like, Such as? Like theory of operations management, leadership. Uh, because I had done this, right? Like I had led crews. Um, I had done operations. Uh, so I actually didn't call, get called out in these classes because I knew the answers. Um, so the professor wouldn't call me out till the very end. Um, and the, the, those two subjects, I think, strategy. Because um, these were subjects that came, I mean, when you're in the middle, you're making a plan constantly for everything that you do. You're handling crews. So you're doing like the financial, the, the people management, all of those elements actually came naturally. So these subjects were a lot easier in comparison to say accounting, finance. Stuff that you hadn't dealt with directly. Exactly. I mean, the only time they, they do this like a one week math camp before HBS, and that's where I sort of really uh, learned the subject matter, which is like people do this in undergrad for four years, and I we learned it in one, and it was it was insane. Like eight in the morning to ten in the night we used to do, and I think at the end of it you, like, that's when I thought I was an admissions mistake, right? There were thirty of us who were doing analytics, as they call it, thirty forty of us, and. Literally at the end of the night, we like half of us were in tears saying this is so difficult. I mean, it is not easy and kudos to anybody who does accounting and finance. I still say the day I start a company, I will call those guys out who are my classmates, who are these finance businesses to be my CFO. Because I can read a balance sheet, but it is a struggle, um, even now. Yeah, but I think that there's an important lesson here. One is that usually... In good business schools, people come in with some experience, usually they've done something. Yeah. But you can't have done everything before. Like True. You can't be an operation person, strategy person, marketing person, sales person, everything in 4-5 years. So you have to, and they put you in a class so that people have different experiences and you learn from each other. Peer learning is a big component. Oh, it is. I mean, it's huge. I think luckily, um, I had friends who came out of their way on Sundays and taught us this. And we reciprocated, right? Like I taught them Tom and they came and taught me finance. Sorry, theory of operations management. Uh, And so they came and... uh, So we... I mean, you help each other out. And luckily, this is not a competition. Uh, There are 900 people, but you're not competing against each other. You're just competing... You're on your own journey, right? And you... In business school, it's not like you have a grade, you have a one, two, three. Uh, and so it's a lot easier to say, okay, I'm on my own journey, you are on your own journey, we can help each other out. There's no like, I'm going to come first or you're going to come first. So there, it was actually nice because you were learning from your peers. And the way HBS is, in a sense, you're just talking in a classroom. So that dialogue inside classroom, outside classroom, before the case study, everything helps you learn from each other. I mean, you'll take these conversations to the bar in the night or dinner over, wherever you go. And that constant dialogue over subjects that were all around that were going everywhere was the learning piece. I mean, I still say what I learned from business school was one, how to talk. Uh, how to talk and articulate in a nice manner. I think like 30 seconds. I think people tend to say, I mean, today I'm talking a lot. But generally, it's a 30-second thing, right? You articulate, you think through, and you really put it out there. Um, I learned how to learn from others, like how to listen, um, how to build on it, and not how to just put my point out there. Um, And I learned how to read very quickly. I think those 200 case studies that we did, you really get the gist of it, you learn it quick, you move. Uh, But HBS taught me all these different skill sets, and how, I mean, think the peer learning was, I mean, I'm not saying the faculty is not great. It's probably the best faculty in the world. 
but the peers taught me way more you always had somebody who had done something super cool right like i remember doing the shell case bp case and the guy in my classroom had been on the rig uh, or was called on the rig when the bp oil spill happened so you have these people in the classroom yeah the tata nano case there's a girl who had worked on the nano engineering so you always had somebody who had done the actual work in that 900 class yeah um and so you ended up learning from real life experiences um and that really enriched the way uh, i learned plus there were clubs so i ended up learning a lot also which ones did you join so i joined the social enterprise club uh, by default you were in the women's club i joined the tech club because i was a techie i joined the design club which was the design thinking and design learning club uh i think that was pretty much it how many women were there in your class uh 40% of the class was women so that was the first year that uh Dean Noria I think came the day, the year before and he really pushed I think the school was changing the way it was functioning they really pushed to get uh, a 50% sort of a split uh so I think 40% of the class was women and um I think there was a high level of diversity in a sense like engineers like me got in because they were pushing for people with different backgrounds so they didn't want the quintessential um you I know consultants i banking uh, private equity people they wanted the engineers in the classroom they wanted people with a diverse background uh, from the social sector uh, we had a bunch of people from teach for india and you know other places who went in over there so they really pushed uh, that diversity factor so uh, yeah we uh, but 40% 3 64 women yeah yeah <coughs> tell me <clears throat> so this 6 months 7 months 1 year into the course um what was your plan of action usually mbas means towards an end or like it an accelerates you towards your goal uh what was your thesis before you went for an mba how did it change during school and what how how when you look at your life today how has it evolved so my thesis before mba like i said in my essay i said i wanted to be an entrepreneur and you know go work west uh and so that's what you that's exactly what you wrote that's that's what i wrote yeah. and that's essentially what i wanted to do and that's what i believed in when i wanted to make these cool embedded control systems like home automation systems yeah. like your alexa thing uh and at that point they want there i really wanted to make that and um then later obviously i landed up at business school i got uh, into the social enterprise club and realized that this is an entire career that you can make i used to always do things on the side like i worked for the girls and boys club the when community theater right when i was uh, when i was in in india i used to work with the rotract and i come from a gandian family so my grandfather uh, with him i've gone like in in our village he's built a hospital he's built a college he's built a girls a school so with him i learned that you know it's always good to give back in a sense we never had birthdays at home right like i was taken to the mother teresa home and i we spend the day with the kids over there that is my version of a birthday actually we didn't have Uh, a big extravagant huge thing and so that's how i grew up at home like my my general learning was towards the social sector my general version always like dad would take us out to show kids on the street studying and saying look these kids are studying for the iit you are highly privileged um you know you you complain about the you know not having a big desk and you complain about not having a big room look at these kids if they can get into iit just sitting on that road studying under a street lamp then you can be fine and you should think about what you can do to make their life better instead of like you know complaining constantly 
so i think my my childhood in that sense from almost all the role models that i had been my grandfather my my dad or even like my my mom or my grandmom in that sense i think there was a huge community giving back element and so i was doing this throughout my life journey but never thought i could make a career out of it i never till i reached hps and i realized there were there's a big chunk of the class doing that um i didn't know that this is a thing that i could pick and so i started exploring it in the social enterprise club and realized that education was the one thing that i was super excited about at that point and because i was uh, at the heart i'm still an engineer technology was another element and edtech was taking up at that point there was a huge wave with this is 2013 yeah so khan academy came in uh, there were all these other edtech so there was a huge edtech bubble in that sense in the us uh, and so i started exploring what i could do in edtech um hps has this thing which we call a roller dex where you stand in the middle of the classroom and you say what you want to do uh and everybody opens up their roller dex so basically their their book of uh cards uh of their contacts and um, i just put out there saying i want to work in edtech and i had somebody who would work with one laptop per child and they said would you be interested and uh, i will just give you the contact i'll introduce you to ceo who works out of florida so some consultant working for bcg and she ended up introducing me uh to one laptop per child um so i i started exploring so i came to india for my internship so the one of the other things was i had been in the states for 8 years um i really wanted to come back and work in india uh, for whatever reason i had never worked in india uh, so i wanted to one work in india uh the other reason was i uh my grandparents were getting old so for me it was integral that i wanted to be a part of their life and i had a little niece who i felt i was missing out uh, a lot of her life so for all these personal reasons i really wanted to come back uh but i came here and i worked a summer i visited so many schools i went and visited all these organizations i met teach for india akanksha kevalya and i realized that um this is what i wanted to do like it really excited me somewhere in my heart i felt like you know it sounds very cheesy in a sense but i felt like i got this weird calling where it said this is this is my life like this gave me a lot of meaning in a sense um and so i started looking for a full time job saying this is what i want to do post business school i want to work in the social sector uh and i realized then so then the professional meaning came and saying one uh if i want to cause impact why should i work in the us right i might as well come back to my country and give back this is this country is invested so much in me um that i might as well come here like if we think about it i got a subsidized engineering education um you know you pay some 40000 rupees a year it's negligible they subsidize us substantially especially women engineers um so throughout if i've got a subsidized education the government is paying for my education i might as well give back to it somewhere right? so in a sense i wanted to work for india plus this is home i feel like i belong um, i feel like i can you know get into hindi and talk wherever i want when i when i want khana and walk down the street i get exactly my flavors um and so i wanted to come back and i didn't have visa issues or anything i'm a us citizen so I could actually so became have, a US citizen by you were there. Yeah, my parents had applied for a permanent residency when we were kids and so by blood or whatever my uncles there and so I had a visa and I got a passport when I was there so I have the American passport but I didn't want to work there. So funnily during HPS I took my citizenship 
and then I decided no, I want to go back to India, and I'm never coming back. Go back to the US. No, I when I was in the US, oh, okay. I said I want to come back to India, and I don't want to come back. Like I'm packing my bag and baggage and never coming back. Yeah. Um, and so that was sort of the thought process because I was so sold when I did my internship. Um, and then during my internship, where I had one laptop, but child. I see. And then I did my winter break. Also, I decided I did a, something called as an independent project. Came here and worked with the Shivnadar Foundation. Right. Uh, and really explored, and then I met Aditya Nadraj, who runs Kevalya, a fellow sitting there. Yeah. Uh, and ended up really. Who is also an MBA? Aditya Nadraj. Yes, Aditya is from NCR. Uh, he's an Ashoka fellow, uh, a fellow as well, and you know, a Cohen Green fellow. And but just him and his idea, right? I came with this idea saying kids are the problem. You know, we should make solutions for kids, and he said no adults are the problem. You know, you if you want to really do tech, uh, make a solution for adults. Uh, and his vision of where he was thinking about Kevalya, his vision for education really sold me. In a sense, I How did think, you meet him? How, who introduced you? I sent out all these emails. Uh, so because the social sector is not uh, the normal route for most HBS MBAs, um, I did sit for any of the consulting interviews. I was very adamant that I will not do that. I reached out to career services at HBS. I reached out to all HBS alumni in India, sort of somehow tried to find email addresses and find people. Um, I had a friend who knew some Teach for India fellows, so I asked them and they introduced me to other people. So I did this full network search where I kept asking people and talking to them and they kept introducing me to other people. Um, and I remember I still have the I mean I do this Excel spreadsheet every time I do a job uh, search I I had like some 50-60 names out there I talked to a whole bunch of people in the US and whoever could introduce me to somebody I got an introduction and talked so Kevalya I remember it was Ranjit who used to handle Bombay at that point of time I was introducing him to him and then he introduced me to Aditya handle Bombay for? for Kevalya okay. he used to handle Bombay operations um, and he introduced me to Aditya saying, you know, you should talk to the CEO if you're coming from HPS because he realized I'll come as a senior person. Hmm. And then I pitched this whole idea to Aditya saying, I want to do technology. Hmm. And so he sold me on the idea that you should do tech for adults. Um, and um, What do you mean tech for adults? So make solutions for adults. We don't make solutions for children. Because if you are making solutions for children, you're bypassing the adult. And the adult is a decision maker at the end of the day. You go into a school... I hand a tablet to a child, the principal or the teacher is going to take it away. You know, that's the fundamental problem in most schools right now, right? You have those labs, they're locked. They're not used because the teacher is scared that machine will break and it will be cut from their salary. So, and in a sense, they are not trained. They are not trained to use those machines. They are not, you know, made, like nobody excites them about tech. So why would they engage, right? Why would that person engage? And the other thing is they don't have the skill sets. There is a fundamental gap over there where um, you have teachers that may be good at some things but also not good at some things and you need to work with them to enable them, to empower them to grow. I mean some of these are really well-meaning people that work in government schools. If you give them the right tools, they will actually move to the next level, right? Uh, and uh, you see the work that Kevalya does at some sense, it's empowering people to, you know, work and move to the next step. You work with principals, teachers, now apparently they are also working with government officials. But I think in a sense they're helping people grow. And I think the tech 
would help them grow right it would be a tool in their hands that would really help them and that's essentially what um, aditya and i started talking about so that was your first job out of hbs yes that was my first job out of hbs there is something yeah. when you go to hbs uh, i don't know how many how much savings you had but it's not an insignificant financial investment did you not worry about the salary that you will make post mba uh, so i did i kept telling my friends i'm going to make peanuts um that's that's literally what i did i mean i had career services call me and say you are making below the poverty line because essentially the director salary in an indian ngo is less than what people make in the us when they i mean basically it's under the poverty line people not interested yeah so i mean it was i mean i remember dean noria cuz you know he used to meet students on and off and i met him walking around campus and said bindi what are you doing and i said i'm going to india and i'm going to work for this ngo uh and by then it was not decided that they are not giving me an offer but i said i'm going to india and i'm going to work in who's very bad where i'm going to work and what i'm going to do because he said this is not a i mean you're not going to make any money you have loans <coughs> luckily hbs has something called as the social enterprise initiative that gives you a check uh, so for i can apply for a scholarship which i have been doing for the last 6 years and it supports me through this journey so till i continue to work in a non-profit organization or a social enterprise they support me through this journey so for the last 6 years actually hps has been paying my loan in a sense it's a scholarship that they're giving me for the subsidized uh, education so my loan was in a sense taken care of have you paid off your loan now? no i still have another 4 years to go because i'm 6 years out of hps i will continue to pay for the next 4 or so 5 years so hps takes care of uh, some amount loan? of it some amount of it. i have i have savings in the us i had put away some money in terms of my retirement money my my stocks or whatever investments and some money that i had saved up so in a sense that was my living my party money or whatever you call it uh so i had that much money stashed away in the bank uh and in a sense i did plan my life like i do have money right now in the bank in the us that i want to pay away my loans pay off my loans i can pay off my loans i was very adamant this was my second masters i was not going to take a penny from my father my father paid for half of my michigan first masters uh he asked me and he would have been fine paying for my second education like second masters but i was very adamant that i was not going to take money from my dad um and so i took this loan and um and it was scary i had this conversation with my dad uh, and told him look i'm not going to be making money uh i'm going to be making a very small amount and he said will you be able to live your life the way you have been because in the us i was living a very nice life I had a big apartment. I had a car. Uh, I was making a lot of money as an engineer, you know, in the Midwest, and so it was difficult. It was a difficult decision to come here. I mean, I remember I was. Um, it was a. It was a very low. I mean, it's not that low a salary. When you, in retrospect, when you start realizing Indian uh, salaries, it's not that low a salary. But the social sector is paid substantially lower. Thus, you were um, coming at a fairly senior position in Cavalier. correct but even senior level yeah. is not paid that much right like a manager's salary at kevalia was 30000 rupees right a senior manager or program manager was 50000 or whatever and i don't mind telling you my salary i was making a lakh a month out of business school so 12 lakhs is what 20000 dollars which is nothing my monthly loan uh, payment was more than my salary check Luckily, if HBS was not subsidizing me, I couldn't have make made this decision. I couldn't have taken 
this so i would i really give the day i earn enough money i will give back to hbs there is no question over here that i will give back in whatever sense i can and that's why i help kids like i i help you know if they ask me to like mentor kids or whatever or if i get emails from hbs kids for social enterprise i make it a point to give back that way to the school because there's no way i could have followed my passion uh and followed this career uh if it hadn't been for that but you know what i also money was not important for me i don't uh, my parents are uh they've made sure that they are comfortable uh i don't have to support them so i am lucky in that sense that i don't have to send money home um the only loan that i had was the education loan um and so which i could pay off with hbs helping me so and i don't need a lot of money i made that rational judgment so you know hbs they make it to this priority list and i did it in my head and i realized money is never been my top priority it is very important for me to follow what i was very excited about what i was passionate about and um it was important for me somewhere to make that impact which slowly had started forming in my head that i wanted to give back uh and i figured that money will follow at some point if i follow what is my dreams and my passion at some point i will end up making enough money that i will be comfortable um or i'll be able to buy like i had this dream of buying a bmw m3 which i haven't still but now i think i can afford to if i want to um so how long were you there at uh, cavalier i was there for 3 years i had gone to the commitment of 2 years telling aditya i'll make certain uh, we had a plan when we initially started out but i hadn't finished it by year 2 so i ended up saying that i will stay another year and finish uh, whatever i had started or at least leave it at a junction where somebody else could pick it up and run with it so aditya being an mba from ncr you right. being an mba from hbs how did you because it's a large complex organization mm-hmm. solving a challenging problem led by people who have prestigious degrees what about people how do you engage with people on the ground who you don't have direct exposure to oh you go to the ground i mean i stayed in rajasthan for like almost 15 to 20 days a month i was on the ground so what aditya told me which i think anybody entering the social sector should do uh, is unlearn everything prior to you getting in the sector he said go to the ground and learn learn from them and all the business school and everything is very nice but go so you know why he picked me he told me a lot later he said i picked you because of your operations experience in aslomitra not because you are an hbs mba i mean hbs mba is a plus but he said because of that operations experience am i picking you because that is what gives you way more credibility so um, looking back in 3 years yeah. were you able to fulfill the goals that you sort of agreed upon so i think that's a question to ask him <laughs> Your so I, I think yes. To some extent, we ended up making a design. I think which they're still implementing. Uh, the tools that we made, um, we got a very strong partner on board, which is Mind Tree, and we ended up making tools with them, which are now uh, going in and being used in the field. So in a sense, I left it at a point where I don't think after I left, they didn't have a CTO for two or three years. And so you were at CTO type as director. So I was the director for technology. They didn't have the C-suite uh, because he was the CEO, and there were ten, eleven directors. Uh, I was the director for technology, which is equivalent to a CTO in any other organization. Um, and so they didn't have anybody. I think our director for technology they've just gotten one, which is three years post me leaving, and they were able to function 
with my design so the uh, with work. my systems yeah. yeah i mean i don't i haven't seen them in action i think last i met him when i was at the tata trust and he showed me the app and he was very excited saying look how what it's turned out so look what we envisioned when we did it when you were there and look now what it's reached must be a great feeling. oh it was it was awesome right like because i remember it was a struggle it's it's a struggle and i i in some sense um, tell everybody who goes into the sector it's not easy you know people come with this very rosy picture of the sector and think it's easy from the corporate world it's twice the amount of work than any corporate life right like you i mean and less money and less money yes uh, and you know all this this stuff about you know the heart is in the right place and all that beautiful but when you need to pay the loans at home that money is important i remember paycheck to paycheck one year i remember i wanted to go for a a trip to like riff in rajasthan which is you know jodhpur and it wasn't that much money and 10000 rupees and i'm thinking should i spend should i not spend um, and to ask that question right like and i've grown up in a very comfortable house that i had to never think about money and to think about every penny that i was spending uh really made me like value my money in that sense yeah. but also it was difficult and it's difficult i mean i look at myself but i notice i mean these fellows work for 15000 a month and sometimes they send the gandhi fellows yeah and they send half the salary home it's commendable right it's commendable that you come out of college you go work on the ground for 2 years and the conditions they work in i mean and forget teach for india gandhi fellowship wherever i think it's highly commendable right now what the youth are doing right now right um, and for me that was an inspiration when i looked at them i said you know what i'm getting a lot of money i live in a comfortable house in malbianagar and delhi um, i have food on the table i have a very nice life whenever i want i can buy old monk and live my life it's not that bad right it's really not that bad and i think it put a very different perspective to the way i started thinking about money uh, of course yeah so post kevalya right uh, what did you do so i was looking for uh, what next and i talked to a number of people uh, one of those people happened to be amit chandra who is on the board of piramal foundation uh, if nobody knows him he's been capital ceo now chairman he is also on my board currently one of the ashoka founders uh, and amit was one of those people who i ended up talking to and he said why don't you go to tata trusts they are looking for people uh, he was on the board of tata sons and he uh, i think we are going majorly over time okay but he he in that sense sort of um, helped me uh, you know and told me that why to go to the trust and i ended up saying okay i'll talk so i talked to venkat who was the managing trustee there um, and venkat said why don't you come here we've got a lot of different positions and so i landed up at the tata trust because i wanted to do more uh, i was thinking of moving towards a leadership position at some level i said i do want to run an organization so what else what other skill sets do i need and i thought okay maybe a big philanthropy might make sense i might learn different skill sets um so i i ended up at the trust so i did a lot of talking i think each of these jobs that i have gone into i had uh, like i said i have that ridiculous excel spreadsheet which i keep uh, you know adding on to every time i do a job search and that's why this network capital thing i think is is beautiful for you guys right you've got a head start you don't even have to build a network because it's giving you a ready made network out there and um, insights from people like you i mean that's the real power. right but in a sense for me i didn't have that network i had hps so i reached out to so many people and i kept asking those questions 
uh, and I kept talking to people to say, okay, what can I do? Where can I go? Uh, you know, help me think through this process. And through that, so Amit, I landed up at the trusts. Uh, I stayed at the trusts for two years. Um, and now you're heading something amazing. Tell us about yeah. that. Yeah. So I, I mean, I'll, I'll tell you about the trusts. I thought it was wrong decision. I think philanthropy is definitely not for me. Um, and I think I. Are you comfortable talking about it? Absolutely, not a problem at all. I think I made. So I think that's one of the wrong decisions I made. I think every decision, my, in a sense, I've made. I have one followed my gut somewhere. I would say, or you can call it my instinct. Uh, and at the trust before joining it, I was very uncomfortable. Somewhere I was not excited, uh, but I still went ahead with it. And I, what I realized, they gave me a fundraising role uh, because I was an HBS alum, MBA. They said, okay, you've got the networks, you can fundraise. I had no skill sets to fundraise. Uh, I didn't know how to go talk to people. I had, I had a network, but it was difficult, right? Uh, great thing I learned a lot in the process but I, I was miserable and the worst part is the trusts were going through uh, a huge churn Cyrus Mistry got fired around that time the managing trustee sort of disappeared at the trust and the trusts were in a chaos the two years I was there so it was a difficult period for me in that sense I wasn't that happy uh, and I realized I was very far away from the ground I like to be in the thick of things. Uh, at the heart, I'm still an operations person. And so um, I wanted to be, you know, out there. Uh, and the trust, I was at like a six degrees or more level of separation. And it wasn't fun. Like, so I, I asked that question to me, am I enjoying this? I was getting a lot of money. The trusts literally gave me a 5x salary to what I was making at Kevalda. Or more than that. Uh, and so it was a lot of money. But the thing was, was that money worth it, right? Like if I was hating my job, I didn't want to go to work every day. I, there were days when I would just sit in bed and say, I don't feel like going to work. And so it was literally, and it wasn't because they were bad, it was just me. I was a misfit for that organization. I wasn't, like, I, it didn't excite me in any way or form. Um, and so I really started asking those questions and I started again on my job search, talking to a whole bunch of people. and. I ended up talking to Pramath, uh, who is another founder of Ashoka. Uh, I was looking to actually run a non-profit. So I was looking for these positions which were COO level positions to say, okay, can I get that senior level positions for operation strategy? I think I would be a good fit. Uh, but I talked to Pramath and he said there's a head of research position at Center for Social Impact and Philanthropy where I currently work. And I said, why not? Let me just talk to Ingrid, who's a director. And I had a long, nice one-hour conversation with Ingrid and I told her, this is not what you need. You don't need a research director. You need somebody else. Uh, and I outlined this whole position that I made up saying that this is what you need. You need a research director, but you need this other person, which I think I can be. Uh, and I sold her on that position. Uh, and eventually Ingrid uh, <coughs> called me back and said, I made this position for you. So this position that I'm in actually is made with me in her head. Whatever I sold to her is what she's made. Uh, so it's like a tailor-made position for me. Uh, Do you in like that your sense. job? Oh, I love my job. Uh, I enjoy this a lot. Um, and I think somebody asked the question, what happens when you move up the chain? And I think this job is now, uh, has put me in that management level, right? I'm one down from the director. Uh, and in a sense, she's one of those bosses who really uh, gives you the autonomy to do whatever you want. Uh, 
right? She's given me the leeway, leeway to do what, I mean, everything almost. Uh, in a sense, I do the fundraising, I'm doing the partnerships, I'm running um, a lot, like three different verticals at the center. And it's exciting. One, I'm working with youth on campus, with the Young India Fellowship, with undergrads. I'm getting to interact and be on a campus, which is, uh, in a sense, very energizing. On the other side, I'm getting to work with non-profits. I'm getting to work with funders, donors, philanthropists. So I'm getting the, the whole world, in a sense. Um, so it is an exciting yeah. job. I would say uh, yeah, I'm really enjoying it. Yeah. And... Um, Again, this time around, I think I took a I took a pay cut and I came here. Um, a pay cut? Yeah. So from Tata Trusts, uh, Tata Trust was paying her very, very. I had almost outpriced myself. So when I actually looked around for jobs, everybody told me we can't afford you. Outpriced by non-profit standards. Yeah, yeah. And Ingrid told me, look, I have a tailor-made job for you. I have made this with you in my mind, but I can't afford you. Now, if you want to come on board, I will give you, she put a number out there, which was a, almost a 40% pay cut. Uh, but I think in a sense, it was something that I uh, was super excited about. Uh, it was a job made for me. Uh, which you created in part. Yeah. I and always believe that your the best jobs are the ones that you create yourself. Yeah, and plus I was getting a lot of responsibility, right? Like to run, in a sense, the center almost uh, with her. Uh, was very exciting and then to work with a woman boss who is so inspirational like I don't know if you know English. like your engineering man boss right but Ingrid is in another league herself right she used to be cry CEO and she made what cry is and she is this boss that you can look up to and learn from and I think I'm learning a lot from her right now uh, and as a female you know uh, trying to reach that top I think she is one of those people that enables you to move to the next step She's giving me the right feedback to grow. She's giving me the right platform to grow. And I think that is that is what you need, right, in a job. And so I was fine with taking that pay cut. Um, and I don't need that money. I mean, I put a majority of my money in mutual funds and I really don't spend all of it, right? Um, so I, I actually find the idea that um, if I'm doing something that I want to get up in the morning and trek two hours and go to Sony for two and still have a smile on my face, I think it's it's awesome, right? Like the job gives a lot of meaning to me. No, absolutely. Um, and my job defines me in a sense, right? I think 50% of me, if I'm in a miserable job, I'm, I'm miserable. And so uh, for me, it's very, very important that I have a job that I enjoy and I'm passionate about. Uh, and so this, in a sense, answered. So I was fine with taking a pay cut and saying I don't need all that money. I don't know what to do with it also. Uh, I don't have kids that will you know, inherit it. I might as well like go do something that I love doing. And plus, it's giving me a step to really grow. I mean, right now, I talk to almost philan every philanthropist out there in the sector. I'm talking to non-profits across the board. I'm running programs that are run by like Harvard and I'm talking to like Stanford and I'm talking to all these international organizations. We're talking to China, we're talking to Germany. And you talk about it. I've gotten to travel around the world because of this job. I just came back from China. I went to Singapore. I went to Seattle. So I think I couldn't have asked for anything more, right? Everything that I love, I'm getting through my job. Yeah. Um, no, we salute your hustle so much. I mean, this has been precious. Thank you for Thank your you. mental model.